to Shadow Over Innsmouth, an H.P. Lovecraft podcast, where one of us reads uh, one of H.P. Lovecraft's writings to one or more other people. There is also going to be an audiobook version available if you don't want to hear our commentary. Uh, my name is Faith, and here with me today is somebody from the dream world, Jesse. Hey! Guess what? I have a soundboard now. Yes! Um, wait, wait, wait. I have to do something. This is the first episode of the soundboard, so... (laughs) So, um... So... I have a soundboard now, obviously. I love it. Yeah. Um, I I will only abuse it when I'm doing doing (laughs) the main stuff, but it is definitely a thing I have now. It's at our disposal. We can use... This is power that we should not have. <laughs> oh no! It should not should not have been given to me. I already I already have one of my podcasts, basically just a morning zoo. If I can make it one, so <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have to do it in post anymore. I don't have to tell myself to do it. I just press a button. It's oh my god! That's so magical. It saves so much time. I know it's great. All right. So today we're going to be reading Celeferis. Um and I thankfully my edition has the little blurb about it at the beginning when it was written and when it was published and some other information. So this says this story was written in early November 1920 and was first published in The Rainbow in May 1922. An amateur journal edited by Sonia H Green, whom Lovecraft would later marry. <laughs> Ooh. That being said, I mean, HP Lovecraft's pickup line is probably like, "Don't worry, babe, I don't got the consumption," and then proceeds to cough up blood. HP Love HP Lovecraft's uh, pickup line is, "I could teach you pleasures that humans never experience." <laughs> and then he has to sit down for a while because <laughs> the door he just opened was too heavy. <laughs> Uh, okay. One of the most moving and delicate of Lovecraft's Dunsenian tales. There's been a lot of those. Like, the last three we've read have been Dunsenian. Um. So far, I'm liking that mode. Yeah, it has been really good, actually. Uh, it is somewhat similar in conception to Dunsany's The Coronation of Mr. Thomas Shap in The Book of Wonder. In its portrayal of a man who leads an alternate life in dream. It was apparently based on a dream as recorded in an entry in Lovecraft's commonplace book, Dream of Flying Over City. Another entry may also be of relevance, Man Journeys into the Past, or Imaginative Realm, Leaving Bodily Shell Behind. So it's another Dreamland one, which we love. They're always fun. This actually doesn't have a whole lot of hard-to-pronounce words in it, thankfully. It's all those Greek words. They're never pronounced how you think they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's almost like it's uh, basically dead language that evolved into other things. Whoa, hold up. What? (laughs) Whenever you intro the the thing, if you could um, say uh, the the title by H.P. Lovecraft at the beginning, that'd be great. 
Silifers by H.P. Lovecraft. In a dream, Kurani saw the city in the valley, and the sea coast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sailed out of the harbor towards the distant regions where the sea meets the sky. In a dream, it was also that he came by his name of Kirines, for when awake, he was called by another name. Perhaps it was natural for him to dream a new name, for he was the last of his family, and alone among the indifferent millions of London. So there were not many to speak to him and remind him who he had been. His money and lands were gone, and he did not care for the ways of people around him, but preferred to dream and write of his dreams. What he wrote were laughed at by those whom he shooted, so that after time he kept his writings to himself, and finally ceased to write. The more he withdrew from the world around him, the more wonderful his dreams, and it would have been quite futile to try and describe them on paper. Kyrenes was not modern, and did not think like others who wrote. Whilst they strove to strip from life its embroidered robes of myth, and had to shoo in naked ugliness at the foul thing that is reality, Kyrenes sought for the beauty alone. When truth and experience failed to reveal it, he sought it in fancy illusion, and found it on his doorstep, amid the nebulous memories of childhood tales and dreams. That's uh, that's uh, very good. I, I, if only Lovecraft wrote specifically more stuff like this instead of some of the less stuff he later wrote, featuring his Todd. cat and him and his. <laughs> yeah, if was... only he, if only he wrote more things like this and less things like the street or old bugs. <laughs> if only. If yeah. only. Yeah, because there's a lot of very beautiful language here. That um, I am very pro. Mm-hmm. There are not many persons who know what wonders are open to them in the stories and visions of their youth. For when as children we listen and dream, we think but half-formed thoughts, and when as men we try to remember, we are strained phantasms of enchanted hills and gardens, of fountains that sing in the sun, of golden cliffs overhanging murmuring seas, of plains that stretch out to sleeping cities, of bronze and stone, and of shadowy companies of heroes, caparison white horses, along the edges of thick forests. And then we know that we have looked back through the ivory gates to that world of wonder, which was ours before we were wise and unhappy. So, one thing that I think I love about like just that one paragraph, and by the way, this is uh, considered one of the better stories, so we're going to have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's already really good, and we're two paragraphs in. By the way, that paragraph was two sentences. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of lot of commas. There it's- is actually, yeah, there was semicolons and commas though, where you can take a breath. It's not like some of his older ones where there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, and the semicolon like is like there should definitely be a period. Um, but uh, I like. This is, like, a pretty good paragraph about, like, basically showing how life kind of, like, adulthood, I guess, even back in the 20s and stuff, like, especially in the 20s, would just beat the childhood wonderment out of you. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I think that's that's been a theme for a lot of stuff um for for ages and whatnot and um just the idea of like of putting it in a way where you basically like growing up quote unquote is this poison that like shuts off this entire world to you yeah this um, entire vast world that he describes and, and i mean in this case it's supposed to be more of a li- literal place but mm-hmm. metaphorically i think it is a a uh, very good sentence i mean very yeah. good two sentences uh that <laughs> yeah. I would, I would definitely uh, post and be like, "Man, being an adult sucks, doesn't it?" And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I have dreams about all these cool places. Yeah. And yeah, definitely the difference in how he describes London and how he describes this dream world. Yeah, and the, just that. Last- he's like, "Yeah, sure, I guess I live in London, whatever." And I'm just gonna start where the sentence should have began. Um, then. We know that we have looked back through the ivory gates onto a world of wonder, which was ours before we were wise and unhappy. Like, it's just like, damn, that just hits. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, I think it's a, um, I think it's uh, not to uh, be introspective, uh, but it turns out being in quarantine and not being able to get drunk and go to shows uh, makes you think more about stuff um uh, <laughs> funny how that works it's how really a, weird um how a global pandemic makes you kind of anxious <laughs> yeah but uh i like the like like wisdom i think uh a lot of times it does equal like this unhappiness and this like well that's being an adult and i think uh a lot of times like the people who are fighting against that are often like mocked and everything um and i think it's something that um, especially we're we're both millennials. We're like, like we're probably like squarely in the middle of like what people would consider like the millennial generation. Yes, um, yeah. And I like to think I've kept a lot of my childhood spirit alive, and I think it's something that a lot of millennials are trying to do, but everything is trying to fight us. And it's something that um, and I don't. I would like to see how the next generation tries tries it out. Yes, because they're still very much like children at this yeah, point. Yeah, they're. I think the oldest Gen Z is like turning twenty or twenty-one. Yeah, and um, but like capitalism is just beating, it's just, just just trying to beat that out of us like real, like real hard. And I feel like it happens to almost everyone. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you have that. You have the, with the boomers. It was like the f- flower child phase, like the hippie movement. And everything it was like trying to keep that alive. But you saw what happened to them. Um, yeah, <laughs> funny how that works out. Yeah. But uh, I just wanted to talk about some tasty sentences and theming. They were really good. Yeah. Kiranes came very suddenly upon his old world of childhood. He had been dreaming of the house where he was born, the great stone house covered with ivy, where 13 generations of his ancestors had lived, and where he had hoped to die. It was moonlight, and he had stolen out into the fragrant summer night, through the gardens, down the terraces, past the great oaks of the park, and along the white road to the village. The village seemed very old, eaten away at the edge like the moon, which had commenced to wane, and Carinese wondered 
whether the peaked roofs of the small houses hid sleep or death. In the streets were spears of long grass, and the window panes on either side were either broken or filmily staring. Kiranes had not lingered, but had plodded on as though summoned towards some goal. He dared not disobey the summons, for fear it might prove an illusion, like the urges and aspirations of waking life, which do not lead to any goal. Then he had been drawn down a lane that led off from the village street towards the channel cliff, and had come to the end of thing, to the precipice in the abyss, where all the village and all the world fell abruptly into the unechoing emptiness of, of infinity, and where even the sky ahead was empty and unlit by the crumbling moon and the peering stars. Faith had urged him on, over the precipice and into the gulf, where he had floated down, down, past dark, shapeless, undreamed dreams, finally glowing, faintly glowing spheres that have been partly dreamed dreams, and a rift seemed to open in the darkness before him, and he saw the city of the valley, glistening radiantly far, far below, with a background of sea and sky, and a snow-capped mountain near the shore. I think it was very rude of you to just, like, ask this kid to, like, just fall off a cliff. Hey, can you just jump off a cliff? Alright, thanks. Bye. Oh, did you, uh, oh, you're seeing Undream James? Oh, what, what a fucking loser. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> KMS, more like jump off this cliff at, into a world of dreams where <laughs> you relive your childhood and realize that your current life is unfulfilling. Hey, you know how you really wanted to achieve that childhood dream of going back to the village where you were born? Fuck that. Jump off this cliff. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. I think you are the villain of this story. <laughs> just saying. No? saying. Kiranes had awaked the very moment he beheld the city. Yet he knew from his brief glance that it was none other than the Selifars, in the valley of Uth-Nargai, beyond the Tenarian Hills where his spirit had dwelt all the eternity of an hour one summer afternoon very long ago, when he had slipped away from his nurse and let the warm sea breeze lull him to sleep as he watched the clouds from the cliff near the village. He had protested then, when they had found him, waked him, and carried him home. For just as he was aroused, he had been about to sail in a golden galley for those alluring regions where the sea meets the sky. And now he was equally resentful of waking, for he had found his fabulous city after forty weary years. Damn, this dude's like in his fifties. I didn't even think about that. This is this is kind of this feels like a more sad version of like the white ship almost. It does. <laughs> it really does. It's like what if what if this what if the white ship was about this like forty or fifty year old man who was like really sad and everyone just like didn't listen to him and all he wanted to do is relive his childhood but also he couldn't because he's old and about to die because he's old and the place he wanted to go back to is crumbling and dying Ugh. but three nights afterwards Kiranes came to Selifars as he dreamed first of the village that was asleep or dead of the abyss down which one must float silently 
Then the rift appeared again, and he beheld the glittering minarets of the city, and he saw the graceful galleys riding at anchor in the blue harbor, and watched the ginkgo trees of Mount Oran swaying in the sea breeze. But this time he was not snatched away, and like a winged being settled gradually over a grassy hillside till finally his feet rested gently on the turf. He had indeed come back to the alley Uth Nargai and the splendid city of Selefars. Down the hill, amid scented grasses and brilliant flowers, walked Kurnes over the bubbling Naraxa on the small wooden bridge where he had carved his name so many years ago, and through the whispering grove to the great stone bridge by the city gate. All was as of old, nor were the marble walls discolored, nor the polished bronze statues upon them tarnished. And Kurnes saw that he had need not tremble, lest the things he knew be vanished. For even the sentries on the ramparts were the same, and still as young as he remembered them. When he entered the city, past the bronze gates, and over the onyx pavements, the merchants and camel drivers greeted him as if he had never been away. And it was the same at the turquoise temple of Nath-Horthoth, where the orchid-wreathed priests told him that there is no time in Uth-Nargai, but only perpetual youth. When Kuranes walked through the street of pillars to the seaward wall, were gathered the traders and sailors and strange men from the regions where the sea meets the sky. There he stayed long, gazing out over the bright harbor, where the ripples sparked beneath an unknown sun, and where rode lightly the galleys from far places over the water. And he gazed also upon Mount Aran, rising regally from the shore, its lower slopes green with swaying trees, and its white summit touching the sky. Part of me wonders, and this is this is me trying to diagnose someone who, from the past or anything, if like Lovecraft, like was like clinically depressed or something. Be- oh, I would um, doubt where it. He, where where like he went from like you know feeling like kind of normal to like like incredibly low, um, mm-hmm. because. Or I would don't say I don't want to say manic or anything, but just like would hit like really deep depressions because this story yeah. so far and stuff like the white ship and a lot of the dreamland stuff, um, in the tree and uh, and hell even the cats of Uthar they have like this kind of playfulness to them, like this joy to them, mm-hmm. and then you get like these like crushing horrors out of nowhere. And I'm wondering if that was, like, an emotional state, uh, based off an emotional state or not. I wonder how many of these are, like, in a row that he wrote. Let's see, Nexus from Beyond and then Nyarlathotep. Yeah, that could very well be. Because, like, like, I'm just noticing, because I have, my book is in writing order, Faith's book is in uh, publishing order. But I'm looking, but I'm looking at the writing order of this. And we have, so we have the statement of Randolph Carter. And that one, you know, it's kind of whatever. Then we have, like, a pretty playful story with the terrible old man. Um, the Cats of Uthar, also very playful and joyful. Then we have or the no, tree. Mine, mine is in written order. Because the next story was written later in November. Hmm. 
and that's Nyarlathotep, which is not a happy story. Actually, mine mine might actually be in published order. Then I think it was yeah. something. Or no, sorry, it's from Beyond and then Nyarlathotep, and from Beyond is spoiler alert, not the happiest story. It's just like I'm noticing. I'm noticing that some of the stories that are like a little bit more playful and have like a lot more joy to them seem to be like kind of bunched up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I've had that before, where I felt normal for a while, and then, like, I went into a very deep, depressive episode, and it was incredibly different how how it felt versus when I felt normal. Yeah, and I mean, I have I have two and everything. It's just like I'm also not a writer, although yeah, although like I, I'm like I do I did podcasts when I was incredibly depressed, and like I can tell personally when I was. <laughs> like, when yeah, I hear right. it. like I sound like somewhat normal except in places I slip because I perform um but like the but like I'd hit certain things and I'd hit jokes in a certain way and like I'm just like damn I was having a bad day that day wasn't I <laughs> yeah <laughs> no definitely because like all of these were written within like a couple months of each other these next couple ones which are not super happy so yeah, that's very possible. Like like I mean, I know it's possible to be a very happy person and like write like very horrific things. Just look at Jinji Ito. Like he's basically just <laughs> like a like he's basically just a corny cat dad who can write some of the most uh, who can write and draw some of the like most horrific stuff. But That man is living a wonderful life. He's oh my god, he's so he's such he's a beautiful wonderful. soul. He's such a beautiful <laughs> soul. Um who also illustrated some of the Ugh, ugh. worst stuff to look at and like ugh. um also apparently did a uh apparently Jinji Ito did uh some manga adaptations of um Lovecraft as well. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Well Lovecraft is uh, like a big inspiration for Jinji Ito uh, yeah. like he says himself. Um but uh, but yeah, I mean, I know I, I don't want to like analyze too much, but I'm just noticing like how stuff seems to be kind of bunched up, at least, <laughs> and everything. Um, and also, I think this is—I'll I'll have to get to the end of the story and everything. But I have some thoughts about why he probably married <laughs> the why the person <laughs> who helped publish this maybe married him. Um, uh, I have some ideas. Sonia H. Green. See, yeah, Sonia H. Green. Like, I have a feeling. That I would, I think I would be, I think I would see a very kind soul who wrote this, honestly, because it does, mm-hmm. it does have this like kindness and joy behind it. Yes. Um, and I hope it doesn't turn horribly racist in the last bit, because like we had a uh, the um the Polaris was like very, it was kind and sad, it, like it was a kind soul writing a sad story that like ra- that got racist for like one sentence, <laughs> so like. I know that very. It was the second to last sentence. No, it looks like it doesn't. Okay, well, uh, maybe we're just gonna have a like a block of like we're just real kind stories. I'm, I'm yeah, gonna be we happy. Have two more pages left, and it doesn't look like anything racist is said or done. Just from glancing over them, at least. I don't know. It might be an old timey spelling of a slur. Oh fuck yeah! Like last time, <laughs> 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 fuck. <laughs> More than ever, Kiranes 
wished to sail in a galley to far places of which he had heard so many strange tales, and he sought again the captain who had agreed to carry him so long ago. He found the man, Athib, sitting on the same chest of spices he sat upon before, and Athib seemed not to realize that any time had passed. When the two rowed to a galley in the harbor, and giving orders to the oarsmen, commenced sail out to the billowy Serenarian Sea that leads to the sky. For several days they glided undulatingly over the water, until finally they came to the horizon, where the sea meets the sky. There the galley paused, not at all, but floated easily in the blue of the sky, among fleecy clouds tinted with rose. So I would like to think that undulatingly would be a more sensual uh, move, you know, like, (laughs) like row across the sea. It'd be like, ooh, you're writhing and undulating in this weird way. And maybe, maybe that's how like Lovecraft like got into the seas. It's like, mm, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is it? The innate eroticism of the sea. Yeah, man. I really do think like old timey sailors were just like real horny oh, no, motherfuckers. They were, they were totally horny. <laughs> they, for they the were ocean. like real. They're real horny, and also there's no gayness on the sea. It's like oh, yeah. but like, but like, just looking at the sea, be like. Unless you're a pirate, and then you're gay, because you're already breaking every other law. Yeah. If you're a pirate, you can be gay. Like, super gay. Yeah. But if you're a sailor, no. <laughs> There's no gayness. You just have to be horny and suffer. Yeah. And you have to look at you have to look at manatees and be like, damn, look at those titties. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch the, the lighthouse yet? I need to. Oh, damn. That's a lot about being horny about the ocean. Like... Okay, I heard it described. I heard it described as uh, two horny, horny people jerking off, and then then a, like a squid person shows up. Yeah, that's pretty close. Okay, okay, I need to watch I, it. I won't say everything, <laughs> but yeah, it's a movie about being extra horny for the ocean. Okay, I'm 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 down. I'm I'm down. Also, it's real good. also, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real honest, Robert uh, Robert Pattinson. Like looking like just like that real dirty like ragged uh, like uh, lighthouse person. I oh oof like that. that, that I know. Oof. I know it does it for me too. I don't know why. Yeah. So I don't know about gliding and undulating. Glided undulatingly over the water. So gliding. Is- okay, gliding. Okay, cool. You're going. You're going. It's like like that. Undulating is like maybe maybe it's just me. But like I'm thinking writhing, and like I'm like moving around. Yeah, and, like, like I, it seems like a lot of movement. <laughs> like like moving around in a way that's both natural but also seems uncomfortable at the yeah. same time. So yeah, it just doesn't seem. It seems very out of place, undulatingly in the middle of that sentence. I feel like we maybe need to, maybe I, I feel like it had a very different connotation though. <laughs> like I want, I want to uh, make, I want to make a real good drop about the innate eroticism of the sea that we could just drop <laughs> in whatever, whatever feels like he's being horny about the sea. <laughs> Damn! If only we had that for Dagon. Well, no, Dagon wasn't no. very horny for the sea. No, no, he wasn't horny. In fact, it was almost anti-horny for yeah. the sea. It was just like, was wow, this being terrified of the sea. This, this does the opposite of what makes me erot- feel erotic. 
<laughs> I am only terrified, and not the good kind of terrified, where you're also horny. I'm just I don't, I don't have I don't have a fear boner. I just have a fear. <laughs> I I feel like I feel okay. So I feel like you could like uh, talk about Lovecraft stories in multiple ways. And I feel like I don't have a fear boner, I just have a fear, is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) That describes a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories. Where it's like, ooh, this fleshy monster comes out of nowhere. It's like, okay, and then it's like, oh, but also it's terrifying. It's like, damn. Now, 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 for all the, uh, now, all for other queer monster fuckers out there, just like, ooh, you're fleshy and horrifying? Yes. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> oh, tell me about the unspeakable horrors and pleasures you will bring upon him mankind. Please. And then you get, and then your next story is Color Out Space, and you're like, damn. That's just scary, never mind. Damn, this <laughs> I don't is- like this anymore. Yeah, one, one, of them, one of them is I have a fear boner, the other one is I don't have a fear boner, I have a fear. I have a fear and nothing else. <laughs> it's too scaly. <laughs> so, um, now we have. Well, there's probably another one. Uh, we'll we'll come up with it probably by the end of this one. But I feel like I feel like we could come up with some pretty good uh slots for stories to go into. Yes, some cat some uh, classifications. That might be something we do a little bit later. As a thing, yes. because uh, I had not thought about it yet, but I feel like we should definitely come up with a uh, count, like a classification on the HP Listcraft as well. Like put next to all of them what they are. So yes. Yeah. Because the tomb is definitely, I have a fear boner. Uh, yes. <laughs> so. Yes. For the color out of space is definitely, I do not have a fear boner. I only have a fear. <laughs> so. Uh, that's something we can do later as a mm-hmm. bonus episode. Also, Jesse yes. cut out a lot of this. But also, maybe not. I don't know. We'll talk it's about it later. And far beneath the keel, Curanes could see strange lands and rivers and cities of surpassing beauty spread indolently in the sunshine, which seemed never to lessen or disappear. At length, a Thebe told him that their journey was near its end and that they would soon Enter the harbor of Serenian, the pink marble city of the clouds, which is built on the ethereal coast where the west wind blows into the sky. But as the highest of the city carven towers came into sight, there was a sound somewhat in space, and Curanes awaked to his London garret. For many months after that, Curanes sought the marvelous city of Selifars and its sky-bound galleys in vain, and though his dreams carried him to many gorgeous and unheard-of places, no one whom he met could tell him how to find Uth-Nargai, beyond the Tanarian hills. One night, he went flying over dark mountains, where there were faint lone campfires at great distances apart, and straying shaggy herds with tinkling bells on the leaders, and in the wildest part of this hilly country, so remote that few men ever have seen it, he found a hideously ancient wall or causeway of stone zigzagging along the ridges and valleys, too gigantic to have risen by human hands, and of such a length that neither end could be seen. How, how old is hideously ancient? 
does talk about old things being hideous very commonly. Yeah, like, like, not to to compare him to a hack and a fraud, R.L. Stein. Um, <laughs> uh, like R.L. Stein, whenever he's about to talk about something spooky, it always smells sour for some reason. I get that. And uh, like, I always feel like if I smell something sour, I know I'm going to have a hard time. I'm going to have a bad time. Um, and also, I'm I'm noticing a lack of a word that he uses a lot later, cyclopean, because this yes. would have been fit perfectly in this sentence. Yeah, cyclopean. Found an ancient cyclopean wall. Ooh. I don't know. I just don't know what hideously ancient would be. Yeah, what is that? Because he talked about just mean? ancient things before, but what's hideously ancient? What, what what's the divide? What's the how do you divide ancient from hideous ancient? Yeah. Hideously ancient. Like, Where is the line, H.P. Lovecraft? We need to know. Yeah, like, I need to know how something can be so old, it's ugly, and I want to not be around it. <laughs> yeah. I can't even look at it. I gag. You're hideous Ugh. and ancient. Oh, God, it's so old. But then some are just like, wow, this is ancient. He does hate old things. There's a lot of old people that are antagonists in his story, or old-looking. Well, he even has a uh, a, a story called The Terrible called Old Man. Called The Terrible Old Man, <laughs> yeah. And then the wizard in... Um, the Alchemist? The Alchemist. Yeah, the Alchemist in The Alchemist is described as being hideous and old. Hmm. That's hmm. something we probably want to keep tabs on. Yes. That so far is is something that I did not notice before in my readings until I read through stuff chronologically somewhat. <laughs> Just a, a, an irrational fear of old things. He walks past a nursing home. He's like, no! Beyond that wall in the gray dawn, he came to a land of quaint gardens and cherry trees. And when the sun rose, he beheld such beauty of red and white flowers green foliage and lawns, white paths, diamond brooks, blue lakelets, carven bridges, and red-roofed pagodas, that he for a moment forgot Zelopher's in sheer delight. He remembered it again when he walked down a white path towards red-roofed pagoda, and would have questioned the people of that land about it, had he not found that there were no people there, but only birds and bees and butterflies. Oh, I love that. Except for the birds. Get rid of the birds. Get rid of the birds. I hate birds. Birds suck. Not the, gonna lie, that sounds dope. But the uh, but the uh, but the bees and bees and butterflies, I'm like pretty cool with. Birds suck, and they they they're against some <laughs> sort of god. I don't know which one, but I believe in that god. Whichever one who hates birds. <laughs> <laughs> the birds. That sounds dope, though. No people, just a lot of beautiful nature. Yeah. That's nice. I, I used to I used to get lost in woods on purpose because of that. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> this would be this would be your jam. Yeah, it would be. On another night, Curanese walked up a damp stone spiral stairway endlessly and came to a tower window overlooking a mighty plain and river lit by the full moon. And in the silent city that spread away from the river bank, he thought he beheld some feature or arrangement which he had known before. He would have descended and asked the way to Uth-Nargai, had not a fearsome aurora sputtered up from some remote place beyond the horizon. 
shewing the ruin and antiquity of the city, and the stagnation of the reedy river, and the death lying upon that land, as it had lain since King Kinartholus came home from his conquest to find the vengeance of the gods. So Curinae sought fruitlessly for the marvelous city of Selefers, and its galleys that sailed to the Seranian in the sky, meanwhile seeing many wonders and once barely escaping from the high priest, not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery on the cold desert plateau of Lang. Okay, okay, so um, here's the thing that I don't like. He said, High priest, not to be described. Then describes the priest. I know! Just don't describe it. Just don't describe it. I don't know. I feel like I feel like he's still yeah. like not knowing how to not describe things at this point. Like he gets real good <laughs> at not describing things in a very spooky way later. Yeah, later. Or like when he's like the unnamed whore and then names it, but he gets better later on. Yeah, and like he's better that. at like not describing things later in a spooky way. This time he's just like, Yeah, it's a dude <laughs> in a yellow silk mask or whatever. <laughs> yeah. He lives in a monastery. It's spooky. Yeah, just like you just described so many. I now can picture this person. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if this is like an early reference to Hester or the king all in yellow. That could be. We'll have to. We'll have to note that down later. This reminds me. I need to reread Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow. We should probably maybe do that. Because that does actually, because that does actually like feed into some of the mythos. Yes, yeah, no. he wrote a lot of um, mythos, or at least what seems like mythos adjacent stories. Yeah, we, that's something we need to plan later. We have like a thousand something pages to go through oh before. Oh my god! We can yeah, think I about mean, that. there's a ton of Lovecraft stories to go through before we go into Lovecraft adjacent stories. <laughs> Yeah. We will not read the ball of Native American spirits that want to kill white people, though. No. Let's not do that. No, the mound is banned off of this one, and we would ban the street if we knew that it existed beforehand. <laughs> but we didn't. <laughs> and we had to read it, and it was bad. Well, I mean, I'm still releasing it just because it's the perfect, it's like the perfect short story to show how you radicalize young white, white people. Um, yes. <laughs> so... Uh, as a leftist, I feel like I need to point that out. Um, yes. But. There's also plenty of commentary on there about how much it sucks. Yeah. But, yeah. In time, he grew so impatient of the bleak intervals of day that he began buying drugs in order to increase his periods of sleep. Hashish helped a great deal. When one sent him to a part of space where form does not exist, but where glowing gases study the secrets of existence. And a violet colored glass <laughs> glass and a violet colored gas told him that this part of space was outside what he had called infinity. The gas had not heard of planets and organisms before, but identified Curinase merely as one from infinity where matter, energy, and gravitation exist. Curinase now very anxious to return. Curinase, now very anxious to return to minaret-studded Selefarth, and increased his doses of drugs, but eventually he had no more money left, and could buy no drugs. Then, one summer day, he was turned out of his garret, and wandered aimlessly through the streets, 
drifting over a bridge to a place where the houses grew thinner and thinner. And it was there that fulfillment came, and he met the cordage of knights come from Selepharis to bear him thither forever. So, one of the things that I love about, like, just that one, just that paragraph alone, is, like, you just described something I need to know, like, have a thousand pages on. Yes. Like, like the idea of, like, going to sleep and finding, like, something outside of infinity where it studies the secret of existence. And, like, how it's so far away from what what is normal to you that they never even heard of your ex- of something like you existing. Yeah, they have no idea what even you are. Like, it's, like, I want that. I want to know more about that. Yeah. I want more of this, which is, like, what Dreamlands go into, of course, which is mm-hmm. why I think the Dreamland stuff's quickly becoming some of my favorite stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, ever since he started it, like, it's been some of my favorite stuff, and that was pretty early on. But, yeah. Also, I yes. like the idea of him just, like, just doing dabs so he could just see some... <laughs> <laughs> like some multicolored uh, glowing gases that'd be like, whoa, what the fuck you? Whoa, <laughs> what's your deal? And they're like, yo, what's your deal? <laughs> like he's just, he's just like, he's just like doing some like some real good hash, like you know, just dabbing. <laughs> Damn. How, how 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 did they how did they heat how did they heat their hash hash pipe they they didn't have electric <laughs> yeah. stoves to put <laughs> <laughs> just over like a open flame oh uh, that's not cool that um, sounds like really dangerous actually <laughs> yeah okay sorry like I both had uh like I was thinking like wow that's like beautiful and awesome but also like he's totally just <laughs> getting high off his ass <laughs> yeah. If you give me enough hash, I'd probably see about the same stuff. He's doing the devil's cabbage. <laughs> no, not even devil's cabbage. Like, the devil's cabbage, like, like turned, like, so concentrated, you have to, like, it's sludge. The devil's bok choy. <laughs> <laughs> the devil's arugula. <laughs> the devil's kale. Uh, there we go, the devil's kale. <laughs> it's like a it's like a more dense, angrier cabbage. Handsome knights they were, astride roan horses and clad in shining armor, with tabards of cloth of gold curiously emblazoned. So numerous were they that Curanes almost mistook them for an army, but their leader told him that they were sent in his honor. Since it was he who had created Uth Nargai in his dreams, on which account he was now to be appointed its chief god forevermore. When they gave Curanes a horse and placed him at the head of the cavalcade, and all rode majestically through the downs of Surrey and onward towards the region where Curanes and his ancestors were born. It was very strange, but as the riders went on, they seemed to gallop back through time, for whenever they passed through a village in the twilight, they saw only such houses and villagers as Chaucer or men before him might have seen, 
and sometimes they saw knights on horseback with small companies of retainers. When it grew dark, they traveled more swiftly, till soon they were flying uncannily, as if in the air. In the dim dawn they came upon the village which Curanese had seen alive in his childhood, and asleep, or dead, in his dreams. It was alive now, and the early villagers curtsied as the horsemen clattered down the streets and turned off into the lane that ends in the abyss of dreams. Curanese had previously entered that abyss only a night and wondered what it would look like by day, so he watched anxiously as the column approached its brink. Just as they galloped up to the rising ground to the precipice, a golden glare came somewhere out of the east and hid all the landscape in its effulgent draperies. The abyss was now a seething chaos of roseate and cerulean splendor, and invisible voices sang exultantly as the nightly entourage plunged over the edge and floated gracefully down past the glittering clouds in silvery carusications. Endlessly down the horsemen floated, their chargers pawing the aether as if galloping over golden sands, and then luminous vapors spread apart to reveal a greater brightness, the brightness of the city, the city of Seliferis, and the sea coasts beyond, in the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor towards the distant regions where the sea meets the sky. Anne Curinese reigned thereafter over Uthnargai and all the neighboring regions of dream, and held his court alternately in Seliferis and then the cloud fashion Serenian. He reigns there still and will reign happily forever. And though below the cliffs at Innsmouth, the channeled tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn, played mockingly and cast it upon the rocks by ivy-covered Trevor Towers, an especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility. <sighs> Man, like this story, <sighs> like, I like, This is really good. That was also like a real bummer ending. Like I'm still trying to I'm still kinda of playing around with the idea of like him writing stuff in certain moods. Mm-hmm. Um Because this one feels very much like Well, it feels kinda of like how the white ship is. It's the it's this like you finally get everything you want, but then you keep what, looking for more. Yeah, once you have once you have everything that you, that you wanted, and you're looking for more, like reality crashes back in, and it beats you back down to where you were before, or even lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this, like like first off, like there's a good reason why this is a story that like a lot of people say is really good because it is. It's it's very beautifully written, and there's a lot of joy in it that I think. Um, you know, only comes up in really only the Dreamland stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but there's it's always like con- it always like contrasts with this uh, very bleak reality of these extremely sad people. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess like at the beginning, at that initial blurb, it says like going into like one of the notes Lovecraft had about that dream he had was it was 
going into dreamland and like shedding your mortal shell. So like maybe that's what happened. Maybe he is actually in the dream world and he just shed his mortal shell. I mean, you don't need it anymore. Yeah, and um it would be I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if uh maybe this was like a kind of like a metaphor for um you know, maybe being able to shed yourself a little bit to be uh to like enter these fantastical lands cuz like you can tell that like Lovecraft really likes the Dreamland stuff cuz like it's some of his more beautiful stuff that he's written really well also in well, they mentioned the millionaire at the end where he's trying to like um what's the word I'm looking for simulate nobility which i mean this dude already has in dreamworld like it's his he has it also mention of insmith yeah first mention of insmith and uh we had well technically this is was out of thing i mean out of um order but we had arkham which was uh, one that is mentioned a lot we also had kingsport as yes. well um i forget exactly where kingsport's massachusetts was it massachusetts he seems to ride around that area normally it's either massachusetts or rhode island i don't remember i need to look that up real quick so there's a place in tennessee <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I like very often uh, uh, talk to people from yep, there. Where? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Yeah, Lovecraft Country. <laughs> yeah. Is based, Kingsport is based upon Marblehead, Massachusetts, a town bordering Salem. All right. Yeah, but this is the first uh, first thing. We had a first of, of a lot of stuff. Um, Innsmouth, uh, what I'm guessing is an early mention of the king in yellow we'll have to we'll have to track that because it yeah. seems to be very oddly placed in a story that doesn't seem to be focused but on one person yeah maybe just like um it might just be one of those things because like i know i've had this thing as a writer where like i've mentioned something in passing in a story and then like later on like i'm like mm, i need something spooky Hey, this thing in this other story was really spooky, but I never really expanded on it. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And also, um, around this time, I don't think we've uh, gotten too far. I don't think we've hit that point yet. But mm -hmm. the uh, but the person who created uh, Conan as well was really good friends with uh, Lovecraft, and they followed uh... a lot of mythos from each other. And we, I'm wondering when we're going to hit that point. Because you yes. start, you start getting. Because uh, if you look into like the Conan stuff, you have a lot of like elder gods and like references to Lovecraft stuff. And Lovecraft had, you know, that vice versa. Um, and I'm, I'm just not super familiar with the other person's stuff, really. I just know yeah. that it's that it's generally mentioned. So that's something we might want to look into as well. Mm -hmm. yes. And we're not the most like academic one. Uh, like academically looking uh into like lovecraft podcast out there but i like to have the veneer no. of it at least yeah we like to at least pretend well i mean i feel like we're like kind of close to it but i do yeah. but i do want to mention something this is going to be one of the longer ones uh but i do want to maybe look into lovecraft's marriage because honestly i don't really remember too much about it uh like 
from when I looked into him in the past. So Yeah, that would be interesting. Because, I mean, a lot of his personal life shaped his story, so I feel which, like he can't really help it if you're a writer. That's just how it goes. But, uh, well, especially for him. I mean, Polaris is all about him not being able to fight in World War One. Yeah, and him missing just his friend. Yeah. He never came back, which is, like, real sad until, the, like, the racism. <laughs> like, like it wasn't even, like, the casual racism. It was, like, a specific call-out. Like, it's different. Yeah. Like, casual racism, like, I mean, like, you shouldn't let it, but you can kind of let it wash off your back a little bit. Like, it's just, like, uh, that's shitty. But, like, but it was, like, very specifically pointed. And, I mean, he was married to Sonya Green until he died. Yeah. Well, well, let's look into that a little bit before we're at the end of this, because it was, because I would say that this was probably ostensibly, like, one of the, like, this had to be, like, something that, you know, got them together at first, if not, like, you know, got them talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, what was it? It was Sonia what? Sonia H. Green. Oh, she was very pretty, too. Yes. Um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft, uh, he, he pulled someone better than who looked like him. Um, he was not a very attractive man. Yeah. Uh, no. She immigrated from either the Ukraine, Russia, or another part of the Ukraine, but it was called something completely different. I refuse yeah. to try to say the names. Um, apparently she's Jewish. And yeah, she did come from a Jewish family. Which probably uh, helped Lovecraft later in his life to realize <laughs> like maybe I should be such a dick. <laughs> yeah. Um see her dad died when she was super young. Yeah, so apparently she married um at the age of sixteen to Samuel Green and uh Russian whose name was probably Samuel uh Scheckendorf, who was yeah, ten but- years her senior, and Christ that's a big difference. Six- like from that age, from that age, from sixteen to twenty six, Christ, that's a big difference. That's a lot. That is a like, lot. When I look at when I look at a sixteen year old now at like twenty twenty eight, like I'm just like, look at that tiny child. Who could? Uh, well, you, uh, we uh, a lot of people are pedophiles. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot, a yeah. lot more people are pedophiles. Um, yeah, yeah. It was just more legal back then. Yeah, um, apparently he was, apparently Samuel Green was a very, uh, a brutal character. And, apparently uh, a very abusive, which, surprise, surprise, he married a 16-year-old. Yeah, and uh, apparently he killed himself uh, 17 years into their marriage. Shit. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so- she, And yep. she had two children in that marriage, one of which survived childhood. Yeah. So, uh, base. So, yeah. Basically, she was she was independently middle class, which was at the time very unusual. That's, yes, very unusual. Which usually you could only come into by becoming a widow. Yeah. Um. And she uh, she worked as like a hat maker, and just traveled around, and she was able to live in uh, she was able to live in Flatbush, and she apparently. She donated a lot of her money to several amateur press publications, um, and to also go to press conventions and whatnot. Um, so her daughter Florence became a successful journalist under the name of Carol Weld. Ooh. Okay, this is pretty cool. Um, apparently they both had tense relationships, but lost all contact with each other. 
Um, mm-hmm. Green did not mention her daughter in the volume of The Private Life of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and we'll go to the relationship part uh, mm. now. But she's very interesting. Um, her her daughter has quite a interesting rap sheet as well about everything she did as a journalist. Uh, so apparently she met H.P. Uh, at a amateur press convention in Boston. Uh, she was introduced into the world of amateur journalism four years earlier by Lovecraft's colleague, James Ferdinand Morton Jr. That is a name. That is quite a name. Oh, he was also an anarchist writer and political activist of the 1900s <laughs> to the 20s. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Man, maybe this is one of the reasons why Lovecraft like turned into a better person. So... So he was, so he, a political activist through the 20s of a single tax system, racism, the advocacy of women. Like, Christ. Yeah. So The Curse uh, of Racial Prejudice is a thing he wrote. That is, like, Lovecraft had, like, a really interesting network of friends. Yeah. No wonder, like, his legacy lived on. Like, he, like... I mean, he died a pauper, but, like, he had so many really interesting friends that, like, just carried on his stuff. Um, so, so, yeah, so, she issued the, uh, Rainbow, a fanzine described by Raynard Kiner as a largely, as a large and handsome affair, illustrated with half-tone productions of photos of well-known amateurs of the day, containing excellent uh, contributions by many of them. Um, Lovecraft reviewed her magazine at some length in the National Amateur, and a facility edition of the magazine was issued by the Necronomicon Press in uh, 1977. Oh, that's cool. So they reproduced it. Yeah, so they made, they made like a, they made like a, yeah, a fake version of it, and that's, that's interesting. Um, so, so apparently, uh, Lovecraft uh, revised and edited a story called The Horror at Martin's Beach and retitled it as The Invisible Monster, and that was published in Weird Tales. And uh, he completed a story under the pyramids, which we will talk about later, um, and lost the typescript of the story at Union Station in Providence. And that's and he lost it on the way went to Mary Green. So how long did they know each other? Yeah. <laughs> they went. They went on honeymoon to Philadelphia, and then um, and she helped him type for most of their honeymoon, retyping the manuscript. Oh my god, that's like adorable. That's so cute. That's very cute. That is like very cute. And I, like, when did they met? They knew each other. They for, met like, nineteen twenty-one. They, they knew each other for like what three years before they married. Three years. Oh, uh, I bet their courtship was actually like weird and awkward. <laughs> but like but like also nice yes but also probably some like overt racism as well they did have a cat <laughs> named after the n-word um, yes <laughs> so, uh yes. but you know so apparently she also wrote uh four o'clock which was suggested by lovecraft but not revised by him um oh which was first press uh was first printed in something about cats and other pieces Ooh, i want to read that I want to read that. What's that about? Yeah, that sounds rad. I want to read about cats and other pieces. 
a collection of fantasy, horror, and science fiction short stories, poetry, and essays by American author H.P. Lovecraft. Released in 1949 was the fourth collection of Lovecraft's work. So there's a couple different editions. Oh, neat. Oh, so it was after his death. So it was a collection of his stories, some of hers, and a couple and like a couple um, uh, of his peers' stories as well. Oh, she was also robbing the cradle. <laughs> she was. She was. Uh, she was seven years older than Lovecraft. Oh yeah, because her first marriage was pretty long. I didn't think about that. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was. She was. Uh, she was kind of a cougar going after going after young young writers. I don't know how I feel about that. No I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but Lovecraft was thirty-three um, when they married. She was forty. Uh, they oh, they married on my birthday. <laughs> wow, March March third. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> they married on my birthday, so my birthday is also Lovecraft's anniversary. Two is one and one and only. Uh, and of course, uh, he moved into her house because he was a basically a pauper. Um. So she lost her hat shop and suffered a poor health. Uh, Lovecraft could not find work to support both of them, so he, so his wife moved to Cleveland for improvement, and he lived by himself in Brooklyn and uh, started hating New, Lo- New York life intensely. I mean, I would too if my wife wasn't there. I think I would too. I think it was less that he hated New York and that he hated that he wasn't with his wife, yeah. who he wrote with a like edited their stuff and all that and whatnot. <laughs> oh, I love this. During this time, Lovecraft claimed in letters that he was so poor he lived for three days on one loaf of bread and one can of cold beans and a hunk of bread or a hunk of cheese. <laughs> Oof. Oh. So they Sonia, left- I'm eating beans. Oh. So apparently she was kind of like living on the road. They were living separate and Decide on amicable divorce. Yeah, it was never legally... Like, they never legally had it done. Yeah, but hey, amicable divorce is better than a lot of them. A lot oh, of divorces, yeah, no. yeah. Being like, hey, I don't think we should, uh... I don't think we should be married anymore. After her marriage ended in 33, uh, she moved to California. Then three years later, she married a Dr. Abram Davis of Los Angeles. And she didn't hear of Lovecraft's death until 1945, eight years after his... Oh, that's so sad. That is really sad. She didn't hear of his death until, like, seven years after, in 37. Yeah, so technically she was uh, doing bigamy. <laughs> uh, the entire time. Girl, you live your life. And she was, uh, she lived to the ripe old age of 89. She died in 72. Oh my gosh. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, so... Yeah, this is, um, I wish there was, like, a little bit more. I don't, I guess we'd have to look into the autobiography she wrote about, Mm -hmm. uh, about her marriage with him. But, yeah, that is, like, that's, like, real sad. And, uh, like, again, like, Lovecraft died, like, largely unknown and, uh, a pauper. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't get, he didn't really get famous, like, really until, until after his death, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of a, he was, he was a thing, he was a thing in, like, amateur press, but never anything huge. Um, so. Yeah, and he did a lot of amateur press, and, I mean, obviously he met a lot of 
really interesting people. Yeah, a lot of people from who actually, that. yeah, a lot of people who like got like real big too. And, and like it seems like the amateur press scene was very supportive of one another. Tell uh, you can definitely tell that uh, his friends loved him a lot because they're the main reasons why a lot of his stuff was like published like years later in the forties and fifties, like after he died. He, yeah, yeah, it's Robert E. Howard. He was really good friends with Robert E. Howard, um, who uh, who did Conan. Uh, apparently, yeah. So that, so yeah, that was a that was interesting. Um, how, like, how he kind of like got, like he how he kind of uh, met married his like his only wife for <laughs> for really like a long portion of his life, really, because he died. Yeah. He died pretty young. Yeah, he died very young. Because like, what, like thirty seven? He died at thirty seven. So. Like, yeah, this so it's it's interesting. It's it's cool that they you know they, they were probably just like they're probably like uh, better better like writing friends and the only way you can be like close as as men and women at that time was if you were married. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, that's true. But yeah, so this is a little bit longer one, and uh, there's a lot more. I, I know we normally say like the good ones are normally shorter, but this one had a lot of like themes to it that were like. Yes. Fun. Um, so I guess we need to do. Uh, I guess we need to put it on the list. Okay. Um. So. Okay. So we have. Safari. I don't know how to do the umlaut over the eye. Or the accent mark. Celeferis. Celeferis. Okay. So Celeferis. Um. I think this one's gonna be in our top ten, but our top ten is very good. Well, our top nine is good. I would say yes, yeah. The technically terrible man is on there, but that's more of like a like a romp than anything. Yeah. <laughs> um. And if you take away the the time it was written, it would just be kind of like it would be a romp that with a uh, a multiracial gang, um, instead mm -hmm. of it being weirdly like these people are not good. Yeah, if you read it from modern day standards, you're like, yeah, those are sure some surnames. Those are definitely a, a group of diverse people that is not forced at all and would definitely happen in a city. We are really liking the Dreamland stuff. So far, almost all of that is in the They've top. They've been some of his best work so far. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's as good as Color Out of Space. Color Out of Space is no. going to be really hard to beat. And the only reason why I have Dagon and White Ship above it is because those are also very good. Yes. Um, the statement of Randall Carter was pretty good. Memory? Hmm. I, I don't know if I'd put it... Would you put it above Casavuthar? Or the tree? I feel like that's about where it's at. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Where would you put it? Because that would put it around <sighs> either 6, 7, or 8. Um... I think, I think memory is better... Mm -hmm. Um, I wish there was, this feels like, this feels like, memory feels like a segment of this, but. Yes. Almost, um, but it I It feels still like, like memory, but longer, but I yeah. still like memory. Yeah, memory is very good. And also, uh, like, less than 500 words. I mean, I think, put it above Cats of Ulthar. 
I don't know. The tree is really good. Oh, yeah. Both of those were really good. They were short and sweet, and they were very good. Yeah, probably, like, right behind the tree. I think I would rank this above Polaris. Yes. Yeah. Definitely above Polaris. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I'd say this is above Polaris on, on my list. So, just to go down the top ten, we have Dagon. Uh, what the white ship, the color out of space, the uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, memory, cats of Ulthar, tree, Safaris, Safaris, yeah, Safaris, uh, Polaris, and the wall beyond the wall of sleep. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, the last three out of the top ten all pretty much run about the same theme: people yeah. shedding off their own mortal body to become gods, basically, and what they want to be in different places. It's a lot of, um... Escapism? Escapism, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, right below that is Terrible Old Man. Um, (laughs) which I feel is a very big gulf of quality. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, I feel like we're gonna we need we need to get some in between or we in between stuff. It feels like we only had like good stuff and like stuff that's like kind of bad, R- really bad. <laughs> yeah, we need some stuff in between. Also, again, the worst story, and I think it's gonna be real hard to beat this. Old bugs. That God fuck that story. I, again, I put it right below the white supremacist track because fuck old bugs. <laughs> so, so bad. So. Um, so yeah, what do you, uh, I guess we're about, I guess we're done. Okay. Do plugs? I guess. So, uh, my name is Jesse. I have, uh, I'm just gonna do one podcast at a time. Um, and, uh, by the time this comes out, I should be in full swing of my Choose Your Own Adventure book podcast called yeah. Turn to Page. It's both, yeah. a re- it's both a revival slash, uh, completely new. Depending on <laughs> if you've listened to it before, and yeah. if you've listened to it before, I burnt down all the bridges so that was on it uh, <laughs> and restarted it. Um, but that one is going to be me reading a choose your adventure book with mostly my friend Rob, uh, but probably with other people as well. Um, and uh, we will—I mean, I don't know—like do choose your adventure book, make dick jokes. I mean, kind of <laughs> stuff, you know. What else can you do? I mean, what else can you do? Like, like read, read extremely sexual things into like really innocent stuff. I mean, what else are you supposed to do with the Choose Your Adventure book? Yeah, I mean, we already talked about the innate eroticism of the sea, just because the story had undulatingly in it. I, I need, to, I need to get a drop of the innate eroticism of the sea. <laughs> the innate eroticism of the sea. <laughs> Like that's definitely one of the things that we're going to add as in our in our uh in our last segments. So Okay. Um I'm yeah, what do you have to plug? Uh go read my webcomic Grace Swings at Grace Swings We're at chapter nine right now, so I mean catch up while you can. We've been on a hiatus for a while, so you would be able to catch up. Uh but it is an urban horror fantasy. Um and there is a cat in it named H.P. Love Cat. Okay. Well, um, we have to we have to come up with new names for H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's favorite cat in life. So um, that might be one of them. 
I don't it know. It could be. It could be. We, we, we're, we'll discuss it. So yeah, uh, remember, have fun in Dreamland, and um, go talk to those gases that don't even know what people with forms are. Yeah, just like you know, just hit some hit some real sick dabs, you know. <laughs> go talk to some gases on the edge of reality. Bye. All right. Bye bye. <laughs> It's not so bad, it's not so bad How do you know that you're right?